Matthew 24. We're going to leave it right there. Now, this morning we're starting a new series entitled, Behold Our God. Okay, Behold Our God. And really it is the second part of another series we started during Christmas, which was Behold Our God, the first advent, the first coming of Christ. This one, we're going to emphasize... Uh, we're going we're gonna to go through uh, our biblical understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? To me, this is, I believe, one of the most foundational doctrinal realities that we as believers need to not just know. Okay? There's a difference between knowing and embracing. We need to embrace this reality. When you think of the second coming, I think, you know, maybe I don't know what your background is, but... For me, when I think of the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is early on when I first became a Christian, this is what I think about. Picture, please. You, anybody know this guy? Anybody familiar with this guy? Kirk Cameron, Left Behind series? Okay, this is how I first came to know anything about the end times. Okay, I came to know, I, I remember uh, reading half of the book, it was way too long. Uh, so watch the movie. I remember leading a, a youth group with Chrissia and us doing like, left behind nights or something like that. I mean, it was pre pretty wild. I was all into this thing, okay? And all I remember is sleeping and waking up and thinking, I'm still here. Oh my gosh, you know, uh, or thinking that um, Jesus was going to come back and he was going to snatch me up and he was going to leave behind these really nice clothes folded up, right, in, in church. And, and I already knew. It was like, I know who would stay behind. I already know who's going to stay behind and who's not going to stay behind. That's kind of how I thought about the second coming of Jesus. Now, there's that. There's also other people who may think about it in more like this, right? Uh, Obama is the Antichrist. Donald Trump, he's the one, you know? And you look at government, you look at all these signs, and the end is near. Hell is heating up for all unbelievers. I mean, there is so much concerning the, the, the second coming of Jesus that really may come to your mind when I, when I say, um, you know, the end times or the return of Jesus. So, so wh why do I begin here? Because I think that some of these ideas, um, and let me just say, uh, don't watch Left Behind before you talk to me first, okay? Just talk to me before you watch that movie to give you some pointers on what not to agree with and what to possibly accept. So with that, there are two basic attitudes that we have when we talk about uh, the return of Jesus. And, and I think this is important of how we frame this sermon. One, I, I believe there is apocalyptic extremism. Okay, apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic extremism. There have been more than 150 dates um, before uh, starting 7th century BC where people have predicted the return of the Messiah, where they have predicted that Armageddon is about to come. Now, if you've watched the news just a little bit this week, you know that you know, some people are at, you know, very quickly jumping on some dates because there is an extremism in per pursuing and viewing the return of of Jesus, right? I, I mean, there are prophecy-hungry people, right? Uh, Bunker-hiding people, pantry-filled. I mean, you know those, some of those people, right? Preparing for doom, right? Every prophecy, every governmental act, every ruler that rises up, it is the end. It is about to happen. You must go into your room and not come out because it is about to take place. Of course, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, concerning the hour or the, the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Nevertheless, 
we continue to predict. So, so I think that there is an extreme view when you think about the return of Jesus, when you think about the coming of the Son of Man. But there is what I think is a more prevalent view. And, and um, I don't want to say this is you, but, but for most people that I sit down with, this is the overarching view. And it is this, apocalyptic indifference. The world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. There's nothing I could do about it, so let it burn, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, as long as I believe in Jesus, as long as I pray, as long as I go to church, it doesn't matter what happens to the world. Everything will pan itself out. There is an indifference to what the Bible teaches about the return of Jesus. We don't care. It doesn't matter. We don't read it. In fact, there were reformers, men of God in the 15th, 16th century, like John Calvin, who wouldn't even write a commentary on the book of Revelation. Martin Luther called the book of Revelation just a piece of, like, you know, mysterious stuff that could not be understood. If you go through history of Christianity, there would be men of God who would look at the coming of Jesus and say, you know, let's not really worry about that. Let's worry just about the cross. But when we think about the gospel and the cross, we're saved from some place, from our past in our lives, so that, we are, so that we takes us onto another place. And it is looking onto the return of the Lord. And so you would wonder why people look at it this way. Why is it that we're indifferent? There are over 1,800, 1,800 references in the Old Testament um, regarding the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus. Okay, there are 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament speak of this event. In fact, Paul speaks of the return of Jesus in every single one of his letters, except one. For every prophecy of his first coming, there are eight prophecies concerning the second coming. You guys with me so far? Like, this is not a small topic here. This is not something that we do one series at the beginning of the year, and we just kind of, hey, that's awesome. Let's talk about it in a couple of years when things get crazy. No, no, no. The day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, is an essential foundational aspect of what we call today the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you say and you, and you pray, Lord, I, I, I come before you, I, I, re- I receive you as my Lord and Savior, you know what you're saying, I receive eternal life. Eternal life holds a promise that Jesus will return. The gospel has the second Jesus ingrained in it. And so I begin here because the, the sermon this morning is entitled, The Biblical Attitude Required for the Second Coming of Jesus. The biblical attitude that we need to have to embrace this doctrine. Okay, because the second coming of Jesus is not just about signs, although passage this morning is going to begin to give you some signs. It's not about timelines, although there are timelines that we're going to go through these next two, three weeks on a general level. They're not about the events, just about the end of the world. But, but here's what the return of Jesus is about, the second coming. It is about the supernatural, victorious establishment of the kingdom of Jesus over the world and the union with his people. Okay? It is the supernatural and victorious establishment. It is supernatural because as Jesus says in Matthew 24, later we're going to probably read this next week, he says that there has never been a time like this one. This future time of which we do not know yet, we cannot fully comprehend, it is a time that is supernatural. There is a relationship that's going to develop between you and God in a different level. The way the world is, it's going to be in a supernatural way. You're going to experience a different life here when Jesus returns. It is supernatural. So in a way, any type of 
demonstration, any type of sermon will fall short of fully understanding what this means. But it is supernatural. It is also victorious. It is the victory of God, uh, final victory over sin and the reign of the King of Jesus over the world. It is the renewing of the world into perfection and glory. It is you coming in your resurrected body, a body that is better than Adam's body. Think about that. You know that Adam could sin in the garden? You know that story, right? You know Genesis 1, Genesis 1 to 3. Well, when Jesus returns, you're going to go to a place which is not heaven, but heaven comes down here on the earth, renews the earth, and now there is no longer a possibility of sin. There is no way for you to sin. So in a way, the coming of Jesus brings forth a better place than the garden. And I think that's hard for us to grasp when you think of the garden, perfection, that's great, but there was possibility of sin. This place does not. In this place, there is no pain. There is no suffering. There is joy and ultimately a union between you and God that you have never experienced. Look at Revelation 21, right at the end of this, verses 3 and 4. And I have this here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death no more mourning and crying or pain for the former things have passed away now let me just ask this who wants this today right who wants this today right everybody's just man i have my back pain man i want no more pain see this is why this is so central to our understanding of the gospel there is a future time where we will see this uh, played out what would the world look like if Jesus ruled the world? It's not a never-ending church service. I know that's what you think. When Jesus returns, we're just going to be in church and worship all day long. That is not what the return of Jesus is about. It is about you fully experiencing the perfection of government, the perfection of people, the perfection of living forever, the love that you've never felt, but you felt it in moments in this age. It is now expanded. It is now in full and ushering in the person of Christ who is love himself. There will be prosperity, personal relationship with him that you have never felt and you will not feel until he returns. And so the interpretive principle, as we began this morning, okay, and this is just the intro, but this is, the interpretive principle is this, that Jesus is coming back not just to give you signs or to really give you a really cool movie. Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom and to bring heaven and earth together. It is not that you're just going to a better place, as we say often when somebody passes, right? You are, your disembodied spirit goes to be with the Lord, but he doesn't stay there. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, heaven will come down, and we will take on new resurrected bodies that will be uh, perfect before him. And so what should our attitude be? And this is where it's, I pray that you carry this as we look at this this series together. What is our attitude? 1 Peter 1, 3, 4 helps us here. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in where? In heaven. For who? For you. And that heaven is going to come down here on the earth and you will experience it. But I want you to notice this word. 
We, has, we have had a new birth into a living hope. That Greek word energia means active. Means that is a hope that doesn't just say, oh, I've been saved. Awesome. I want to live this life as best as I can. Great. Let me just... No. Living hope is a energetic, is a word that's moving forward. And it says you received that through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But watch, watch this. That hope has been into something. Right? So the gospel doesn't just save you from something, but it saves you into something, into an inheritance that you do not yet possess. And I don't know about you, but I want to experience the fullness of God. If I want to experience that, then I want to live with this living hope. And so this is our attitude, steadfast hope, saints. Do you have hope for the return of Jesus when things get tough and things get hard? Hope is a clear picture of the future that sustains you in the present in the midst of toil. You will be able to do a lot to suffer in this age if you have the hope of the return of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray as we just look at Matthew 24. Father, I pray that we may be a people, God, with steadfast hope. We may not be um, swayed by the media, swayed by what we see, even by what we feel. But we may be swayed, God, by your Holy Spirit that teaches us that you will come back and there is a hope within every soul that things can be better, and they will be, as you come back and speak into us and change us into your people once and forever in perfection. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to understand this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 24. So you have that there. And you could, well, all we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 24, verse 1 through 8. And uh, Matthew 24 and 25, tank it together. Uh, make up what is called the Olivet Discourse. It is a discourse or statements that Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives. Okay, it is the north side of the temple, and Jesus was overlooking the temple of Jerusalem as he's making this statement. That's going to be important, okay, as we look into this uh, together. Um, and so let me give you some background as we, um, actually, why don't we just read it? Let's just go ahead and read it since you have it up. All right, verse, verse 1, let's, let's read 1 through 8. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. After Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, to, and, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so this is Jesus, again, speaking from the Mount of Olives. And I think it's important to give a little bit of context. For Matthew 21 through Matthew 24, the Pharisees are now stepping up the rejection of the Messiah. Jesus walks into the temple. Uh, this is, by the way, this, these chapters, 21 to 25, really, are a span of two days. Jesus, the day before, had walked in through Jerusalem in the donkey. We call it Palm Sunday, right? We celebrate that. Well, he had just walked in the day before into the temple, Pharisees were going nuts. They were extremely upset that he would walk in the temple and people would begin to ascribe him as king. Because he felt the opposition 
from the Pharisees, Jesus began to change his tone of the way he spoke parables. He was speaking parables towards people, encouraging them, bringing them on to salvation. But now he brings statements, turning his attention to Jewish leadership and their strong, strong resistance to Jesus as their king. And there was one main theme, hypocrisy. That was the main theme, the main tone that Jesus had. And it was this, Matthew 23, 25 this is just an example of the seven judgments he gives the Pharisees. Um, yeah, so we have two verses there, Matthew 23 and 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside will also made clean. Jesus, I mean, if you read, I mean, chapter 22 through 24, you're going to see Jesus. I mean, he is, he is on, okay, against uh, the religious leaders. And there's a reason that the greatest stumbling block for people to come to know him as a savior was religion or, or man-made um, forms of religion. The rejection of the Messiah was not just happening among the people that looked at Jesus, but he was actually the leadership that was seeing Jesus walking this journey, fulfilling the prophecies, and still saying, how could you worship this man? Could anything come out of Nazareth? Their error and rejection produced grief in Jesus. Jesus pleaded with them, pleaded with them. But his grief was so deep that he actually wept. In fact, there are only two times where Jesus weeps. It is when Lazarus dies, and it is here in this passage. So look at Matthew 23. Uh, verse 37 and 39. So again, picture this, right? Picture Jesus in the temple. Two days in the temple. Judgments, judgments against the Pharisees, and now he breaks down. And here it is. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often have I longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing, talking to the Pharisees. For I tell you, I'm sorry, verse 38. This is key here. Look your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, don't get lost in translation here. He's not talking about just any house. He is in the temple, in the center of the temple, uh, of the Herod's temple, and he's saying, look at your house is left desolate, for I tell you, here, here it is, um, it's empty. Here's why, because I'm leaving. The house in reference here is the tabernacle or the temple here, Herod's temple. And it is the entire place, the, the, the location in which this entire narrative takes place. And Jesus is saying, the temple is empty. It is without God because you will not see me again. Because you will not see me again until you worship me. There will be a time where God's people will worship him at that temple. But Jesus is saying, now it's not the time. And so Jesus, wiping his tears, leaving the temple, two heavy days, uh, what I believe some of the most emotional expressions of his person towards the people whom he loves, is now leaving, wiping, wiping his tears and leaving, leaving. And here we have Matthew 24. Jesus leaves the temple, and what do the disciples do? What did they, oh, well, I, I thought I had it there. But what do they do? They call to attention his buildings. What did Jesus just say about the temple? It is what? It is empty. God's not there. Did you guys know that you can have a beautiful building and not have God in that building? 
You, you think that's possible? That you can have a great, magnificent building and a church and a paid staff and incredible tools and you can still not grow in Jesus? Did you know that? That there are people that could be in church for years and still not feel the presence of God. But here are the disciples. Jesus just said, this building is kind of empty. There's not, not much here because I'm leaving. And the disciples, first thing they do is they call attention to, to its buildings. And so Jesus is weeping, but they're emphasizing the beauty of the temple. And the temple in view here is Herod's temple. Okay, Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us that it was 10,000 slaves okay, who, uh, that built this project, $16 billion, 46 years Okay, if you see, this is called the Temple Mount, which is a, actually it's like a trapezoid type of shape. It's kind of a rectangle. But this is the most expensive landmass in the world, right? The most uh, talked about place. And where the temple was, was where the Dome of the Rock is. See that? That Dome of the Rock was where Abraham actually offered Isaac. It's called Mount Moriah. So, so Herod's temple was there, but it was the size of that entire thing. That's how big the temple was was it had complexes for men and women it had places of prayer for men and women outer courts surrounding housing for the priests and levites in fact if you slap them together is the size of two football fields uh, put together historians speak of the temple as the most as the one of the largest and most beautiful sanctuaries in antiquity and so jesus in tears declares that this temple is empty now, what perplexing statement, don't you think? I don't know. Do you guys catch, are you with me so far? You guys get this? How perplexing that Jesus sees the beauty of what man has created, and Jesus says, it's empty. There's not much in there. Um, and, and so here is where we understand why the disciples begin to think of the end of the age. It was a perplexing and confusing statement. This temple was the place where God's people worshiped. This place was the place of daily sacrifice. It was the place where if you would sin, you would bring an offering to God for him to forgive you. You would, you would gather on the out in the women's courts or in the out, outer courts and you would pray to God. You would know that God's presence dwelled in this place. The high priest would enter that temple once a year and offer what, uh, the sacrifice of the lamb, what we call today Yom Kippur. It was, a, you, you know, it was an incredible building, an incredible purpose for the building. But Jesus says this, you can have the building, but you're not going to have me. And so here Jesus says, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And in fact, this was partly fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus brought down Jerusalem and the temple to ashes. In fact, nothing is left except a foundational wall that was part of the west wall of the temple, and that foundational wall today is called the western wall. You know what that western wall is? So, so this, there is one piece left, and so it was inconceivable to think that this majestic place of worship would soon crumble. Why do I spend this much time on the temple and talking about the context? Because our, one of the interpretive principles here when we think about the return of Jesus is that Jerusalem and the Temple Mount will play a central role in the fulfillment of God's plan in the coming of His Son. Where do you get that, Omar? How do you know? I mean, that's a lot from one verse. Look again at verse 3. Look at what they asked Jesus. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what, uh, I'm sorry, and of the end of the age? And I've separated these questions, I think, here to, to put them up for you. 
Um, yeah, you can go to the next slide, I think. But notice, notice here that when they see, they hear about this destruction, that they're not kind of wondering, oh man, that's too bad. But what did they do? They ask, when will this happen? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? For the disciples, it was clear in their mind that the temple, it was related to um, the concept of the end of the age. There was no separation between the destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus and the consummation. In other words, if you were to, to go back in time, you go into a first century Jewish mind to read as if you were there reading the scriptures back then in the city of Jerusalem. If you thought about the destruction of the temple and, and you thought about the return of Jesus, these two were together. And so uh, as we think about the end of the age, and again, I don't know where you stand when you think about Israel, and I don't know that whether it is a far concept in, in America to think about another nation in this sense, but when Jesus returns, again, there's a lot to say about this, and we'll probably get to it later on, is that if we do not yet understand the centrality of Israel as the disciples understood it, then you are already not, not, not understanding uh, the return of Jesus. And so our attitude towards Israel needs to change, or at least needs to be challenged. Now think about this, about Israel. After the destruction of the temple at 70 AD, Israel was dispersed among the nations. In fact, for almost 2,000 years, the Old Testament was in some ways useless for many people. Here's why. About 80% of the Old Testament speaks about the Middle East, speaks about a Jewish people, speaks about Palestine. And for us, for many, when there wasn't a nation of Israel, it was pretty much hard to comprehend. How do we... How do we look at the prophets, right? And we uh, look at that today. Well, what, did, what happened in 1948, right? Uh, Israel becomes a nation in one day, later controls Jerusalem in 1967. And, and what I believe, no prophetic sign is more dramatic or convincing than this. Think about this. Jewish were scattered for 2,000 years. And in one day, God brings them together and they come into this land that's smaller than New Jersey. Isaiah 66, 66.8 says this, Who has heard such a thing? I think this is, this, is, this is right. Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a nation be birthed at once? Zion gave birth to her children. The, think about this. The Hebrew language right? No nation has maintained its national language without a homeland for more than one generation, right? I, I, you know, I came to this country when I was 12. I spoke Spanish, and then I kind of lost some of it, you know, in school. Then my kids kind of lost some of it. They really don't like to speak in Spanish. Uh, their kids most likely will not speak Spanish, and definitely not, right? They're great-grandkids. Here you have, after 2,000 years, in a language that was considered dead comes alive and is the main language of Israel. Today's mil Israel's military is regarded as the most sophisticated and trained military in the world. Israel's since 1985, Israel's world's uh, is the world's largest export of drones, war equipment. They're responsible for 60% of the global market of, um, of war equipment. The U.S. has 25%, with uh, being the second. Watch this. The nation is barely 70 years old, saints. Just, do you guys capture this? It's less than 70 years old. And so why do I say all this? Because if, you are, if we're truly going to do this together, we're truly going to grow and understand that there is, Jesus has yet a promise and a hope. It relates also to the nation of Israel. 
And if we have to, if we have to grasp with these passages and with these verses. Okay, so uh, let's go to verse 4 through 8. Jesus starts not with signs. They had asked for signs, right? But, but he doesn't start with signs. But he begins with this time. And look at verse 8. He says this, all these are the beginning of what? Birth pains. Okay, we, we've had some recent moms in the house, right? And some moms that are due. Uh, or if you're a mother, I think that you know what birth pains are. Or at least I know what a squeeze when my wife's feeling. I know what that it feels like. I definitely know that. It's pretty tough, pretty hard. Um, but, but it is a vivid analogy, isn't it? It is a vivid analogy to describe these four verses that Jesus gives us here. And it is often used by Jewish writers. It was so familiar with Jewish people. Birth pains are an increasing sequence of contractions that finally are so intense, right, that they give, uh, result, the result in a big birth. Contractions open the birth canal for a life birth. And, and when Jesus is about to describe this time called the beginning of birth pains, he uses this analogy to give us an increase of events that will tell us something is going on, okay? Yeah, so Jesus is saying that whatever you're going to read here in verses 4 through 8 are just the beginning since, since Jesus um, came and died and ascended um, to the Father. So let, let's look again. And Jesus begins at the very early stages. So if, so if I had, and I'm going to do this for next week, if I had a timeline, um, Jesus does not yet give signs. But what he gives, he gives a time period preceding his signs. You guys, you guys get that? So, so you're going to read it because that makes sense. And next week, I'm going to have it on a slide so it helps you. But the very early stages of the, of the end of the age, from the time Jesus ascended to the destruction of the temple to today, this, and you're going to see why this is for today, is that Jesus begins with this. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. See, so one of the, one of the um, characteristics, descriptions of this time is that there will be a high level of deception. Now, deception happens not to unbelievers, but to who? To us, right? So this, this is for us here this morning, right? The reason people are going to be deceived is because we put our hope elsewhere, because there will be something else that's going to taste better than the gospel. There's going to be a better place to be than church. There's going to be a better group of people than God's people through which we get fed. The reason we will be deceived is because we set our eyes elsewhere and not to the living hope. But I also think is because we do not set our eyes on Scripture. Because we ultimately deny the supremacy, the beauty of Scripture in our lives, in our families, at hearts. Fewer than one in four Americans, okay, this is 25, only 25%, believe that the Word of God is the actual Word of God to be taken literally. No error. It is both, uh, it is, well, actually, it is not inerrant, which means without error, and it is not infallible, meaning there's other ways in which you can live your life outside of the Scripture. 26% believe that it is a book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts. Now, I know that you go, oh, that's not me. Of course not. I, I would never believe that about the Bible. But my question to all of us is, how is the Bible affecting our lives? Biblical skepticism, skepticism of the Bible is going to affect the way we view the world and the way we live people. 
If we do not ground ourselves in the scriptures, deception will happen easily. Let me give you some things that could happen. Divorce rate will go up. Separations will go up. Homelessness will go up. Mental illness, drug abuse, all will be at an all-time high. Oh, well, guess what? That is at an all-time high now, right? Brothers and sisters, we're living in an age where deception will happen quickly. And Jesus begins to tell us, that this beginning, if you want to see the sign, see the signs before the sign, you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of access to false teaching. There's going to be a lot of access to people drawing you away, away from the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the return of Jesus and into other ideas of the Bible, or other false cults or religions. Um, now, it says here, not, not one person, not two people, but many. In the Greek, uh, actually, that, it's like a number. So actually, it's a limited number. So there's a lot of ways you can be deceived. Jesus warns that deceivers and their deception and false Christianity is going to flourish. False Christianity is going to flourish. I think of, um, you, you know, um, Mormonism, Joseph Smith, right? Um, and the multitude snared in that religion, 4.5 million being deceived by a false gospel. Seeing Jesus as a mere man and not really as divine, right? There's so much here that we can say. Josephus records that after the death of Jesus, there were so many messiahs after Jesus trying to copy Jesus that there would be uh, executions almost uh, every other day of false messiahs. So, so think about this. What are you feeding? What are you feeding into your soul? What are you feeding into your system, into your spirit? What is it that... Um, could deceive you. Now, I'm not saying to be a, uh, you know, the, uh, what is it, a theological police, right? I'm not saying for you to be a cop and catch everything that's wrong. But really, as we think about deception, the question is, Lord, I come, you know, we talk about the uh, Holy Spirit study. We come before the Lord in humility, knowing that we don't know it all, but we depend upon His Word. So, number one, what we see in this time period is that there will be a high level of deception, and we must be on guard. What else? Look at verse 6. You will hear rumors of war, uh, wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but he, here's, here's what it is, but the end is still to come. Do you guys see that? It's not the end yet. It's not the return of Jesus yet. Verse 7, nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. Um, the, uh, King James has pestilences, which is sicknesses. Um, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, here, here's what Jesus is saying. Wars and rumors of wars have been going on throughout the centuries, but they are not the markers of the end. In fact, his word here in verse 6, do not be alarmed. Okay, this word in the Greek is thoreo, which means freak out. You ever done that to, to, to like your, yeah, I've done it to my, my kids or to my wife. Lights off, you turn it on. What do they freak out? Right, they, they shout, they give you a Greek creak. That, that's what this word is. Uh, it, it's cry out loud, to make noise, loud noise due to fear. There will be people who are going to simply freak out. Like scream out, oh my God, I go crazy because the end is coming. And man, I'm so afraid. I don't know what to do. It's going to be crazy. I mean, it's, that's the way, that's, uh, Jesus is saying, don't do that. Believers don't do that. The reason you don't, you don't do that is because it's not the end yet. So the problem is that we, see, this is why understanding the return of Jesus helps us, helps us with how we live our life today. I believe that one of uh, the greatest fears we will face during this time period, the beginning of birth pains, is that we will face, people will be afraid to share the gospel. 
I believe that as we see war, as we see nations rise against nations, opposition within nations, closing of borders, as we begin to see uh, what I believe censorship, you know, there will be a fear in us to say, oh my gosh, the church is going to burn, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, but, but this is not the case. In fact, it'll open more opportunities for us to be bold. Amen? It will open opportunities for us to lay our lives down and to speak the gospel. There will be closed countries, nations against nations. You will not be welcomed in the Middle East. You will not be welcomed in South America. You will not be welcomed here and, and so forth. Things will happen that will make it hard for the world to understand what's happening. And we will have to make decisions to do things that were really difficult for the sake of the gospel. Now, Jesus is saying, this is not then, this is now. The state of the world are the convulsions of childbirth preparing the world for the return of Jesus. So, this beginning of birth pains, the world is chaotic, and the disciples should not think that human or natural disasters signal the end. So, what does he tell us so far here? One, do not be deceived. That, that is a charge from Jesus. And two, do not freak out. Right? Do not be alarmed and do not freak out. What does he say? Wars will come because nations are divided. There will be animosity among the nations. There will be fractions among a people. Uh, the, there will be earthquakes, right? Uh, the word seismos uh, means earthquakes, and it is tied to significant events. When, uh, when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. When he resurrected, there was an earthquake. In the book of Revelation, it was a sixth seal where there was an earthquake. Heavenly sanctuary, at the very, uh, when, when we see the sanctuary in Revelation 11 of the heavenly kingdom, th there was an earthquake. Earthquakes is a sign of cataclysmic events. It, it is a sign of judgment. It is a sign that God is ready to come. It is a sign that the earth is literally opening the canal. The earth is groaning. The earth itself is longing for renewal when Jesus returns. In fact, earthquakes have increased over 265% just this past century, double that in this century prior. Saints, this is, this is not something that's just Jesus said it in passing. This is something that we're living here today. And so as we think about this, what is our hope? What is it that we receive this morning is what is your attitude towards the end times what is your attitude towards the return of jesus is it simply ah, i don't really care i'll just go back to my daily life and try to make it and be successful and live my life is it oh man i'm so afraid i i, I don't even want to come to the service next sunday i'm afraid things are going to fall out of the sky you know I, I, no that's not our attitude our attitude is one of hope one of expectant joy one of faith that jesus will come and so with that, let me give you just, again, very foundational uh, principles here when it comes to three things that I think are, are helpful when you think about an application for us this morning. You guys with me so far? You guys, you guys in? Okay, good. Let me give you one. What we're called to do now as we look at this, and I pray that you read this over and over when you get home, uh, Matthew tw uh, 24, 1 through 8, is that we must remain in steadfast purity of the Scriptures. We must stay in steadfast purity. And what I mean purity, you, you know what that means? That you're cleaning yourself. Like you're, you want to, you know, there's stuff in you that you've learned. There's stuff that you don't know. There's stuff that you're still questioning. But you know what you do? You're purifying it. You're sanctifying it. And, um, and I think that it's going to be a challenge for us because there will be so many people that you think know more than you. There will be so many people that are going to seem like they have it 
better than you and that they know more than you and you're going to be swayed by them. It's going to sound really good in your ears. But let me read to you what Peter says, 2 Peter uh, 2.8. Um, go with, go with, I think I might have the scripture there, but maybe not. If you don't, go to 2 Peter 2.8 and read this, read this with me. This is, this is really, really powerful verse that I think it captures here are the importance of purity. 2 Peter 2.8. For they, talking about false teachers, mouth empty, boastful, and by appealing to the lust of the flesh, lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Okay, how do you know that you're being purified? When you go to church and you feel uncomfortable. Can I just, can I give you a key? If you go to church and you feel like you're in a Christian cruise and in a yacht and just everything's served to me. Oh man, Jesus, don't come back yet. This is so good. Worship is amazing. The pastor, man, sermons, like the videos, the lights. Oh, I love it. If you don't feel a sense of conviction, if you don't feel a sense of being cleansed by the word of God, if you don't feel like you want to go, I, I want to read this when I get home because I don't get it. I want to know if this is, if you don't feel that, I, I want to just, just challenge you here. Be on guard. Be on guard because it'll be easy for you to be deceived. It'll be easy for you to just receive what everybody's saying because here's what they do. False teachers mouth empty words, boastful, but here's how they get you. You ready for this? They speak to your flesh. They speak to what you love. They speak to what makes you feel good. So then when they got you, they got you in, you know what they do? Then they go, oh, so, uh, you know, here's this about prosperity. Here's this thing about, you know, Jesus is not this or takes one Bible out of context, some Bible verse out of context. We must be on guard against false teaching. We must be on guard for what the scripture teaches. And it is for me too, saints. I could be wrong. I, I need you to tell me. Hey, I don't agree with it. I, I, I don't know how you see that. I need, I'm in there with you. Trust me. I, I, fall, I'm, I can be deceived as well. So one, remain steadfast in the purity of scriptures here in this age, in this beginning of birth pains. That is what we're going to do as a church. Number two, remain steadfast simply in trusting Jesus. And that is this, this trusting that whatever is going on around our world today, whatever, like how it's affecting you, listen, I, I don't think it's a joke what COVID has done to us. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to downplay and say we shouldn't be afraid or concerned. I think we should be. I think it is a terrible thing that took place. People lost their jobs. Financially, people have been decimated. I mean, it's been terrible. Like we have to, we have to be honest and say this has been truly difficult for this church. This was difficult. For me, it has been difficult to, to just, how do we do this together? But here's one thing that we know, that we have to trust the Lord. We have to trust that Lord will, in fact, have a plan for us, that he knows why we're going through this in this season of our lives. And if you remove yourself out of just yourself and you look at the entire picture, you look at the beginning of birth pains, you know what you see? Oh, God, God's, do, God's working it. God's setting all this up. God's doing all this for a purpose. So that one day he will rule and reign and I may be in relationship with him forever and in everlasting eternity. And so we must remain in steadfast trust in Jesus. Lastly, and this is how I'm going to end here this morning. And I encourage you to live this out, to pray this out this week. Remain in steadfast hope for the return of Jesus. 
First uh, Peter one thirteen. Let me let me go there. First Peter one thirteen. Oh, I have it here. All right, great. So this is key, and this I'm going to leave it to you, and I pray this encourages you. Therefore, preparing our, your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is he talking here about the grace of the cross? Is he? I mean, look at, look at this. On the grace, set your, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought. Saints, there is a grace of God that you do not yet have. There is a grace that you do not, you know, you know why you always fail? You know why you always go, oh, I, I fail, I sin, or I can't change. There's so many things that grip me, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm doing everything I can to change. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, at the coming of Jesus Christ. The reason why grace sometimes feels insufficient is because there is yet another level of grace that is coming. Amen? There is another level of grace that we're longing for. We're hoping, God, come back. Oh, I'm a, I failed, but you restore me, and I want full restoration, and I want that grace, the future grace. And so as we think about the return of Jesus and we begin our series, I want to just remind you that it is not about just signs and events, although, again, we're going to touch on those. But it's going to be about us longing and hoping and waiting for the grace of God that's going to come, and it's going to make all things right. Amen?